Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 is all we're going to look at. We'll bounce around a little bit, though. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this time would glorify you and edify us, that you'd make us more like your son, and above all things, you would give us the gift of faith, God, a faith that uh, grows and trusts you more and more day by day. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. All right. Well, <clears throat> Hebrews is a book of threats and exhortations. Uh, the author, whoever he is, we don't, we don't know, has a logical approach that he follows roughly throughout most of the book. He'll make some sort of statement of fact, often through like comparing and contrasting Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, and then he'll issue threats and exhortations. I say threats, by which I mean warnings, but I like threats. Because that's, that's what they really are. They're warnings too, but warning doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the same uh, impact that threat does. Uh, anyhow, for example, in chapter 1, which we read this morning, after demonstrating that Christ is superior to the angels, the author goes on to say in chapter 2, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Do you hear it? There's a warning there. You could drift away if you don't pay much closer attention to the good news. Then he continues, For if the words spoken through angels prove unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And again, you, you hear it right there. It's another warning. People that neglected the word, preached by angels, received a just penalty, what do you think will happen if you neglect the message God has spoken in these last days by, by his son? So that's his method, uh, especially in the early parts of Hebrews. And it's the same thing we find in our passage. In verse 1, he starts with the therefore. Um, it was interesting that Romans is the only book in the New Testament that has more therefores than Hebrews. And so Hebrews, is a, it's kind of a hard book to drop in like I'm doing because it's just... It just builds as it goes through. Therefore, therefore, therefore. I think there's 22 therefores in it and 23 in Romans. So you always think of Romans as a highly logical book, uh, but so is Hebrews. Anyway, it starts with the therefore to show that the warning and exhortation he's about to issue is dependent on a statement of fact that he just made in the previous passage. Again, remember, there's no chapters. They were added later for reference. Um, in chapter 3, the author talks at length about the Exodus generation that came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. He uses them as a negative example. Uh, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, and Jude does the same thing in his short epistles. So these, this is a very powerful negative example. It comes up over and over again in the New Testament. Um, in Hebrews three sixteen through 18, the Spirit reminds us, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who come out of Egypt led by Moses? 
And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. It is the example of this generation from which he's issuing the warning contained in our text. And let me just summarize the warning for you right away. Uh, Do not have an unbelieving heart or you will be kept from entering into the rest of God. That's that is what verse one and two saying. But before we get into the particulars of that warning uh, and how it relates to us, I want to make a general point. And that's just simply that warnings are good, needed and a clear expression of love. It's not just in Hebrews that you find this sort of thing. It's the whole Bible. It's interesting to note that the, the Bible opens and closes with a warning. In Genesis 2, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Right, that sounds great, right? In a garden, everything's perfect. He's going to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Again, more positivity. Everyone's liking that. But then in, in the perfect creation, he says this. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And that is a stark warning right there in the beginning. God says, if you eat this fruit, you will die. Don't eat the fruit, Adam. You've been warned. In Revelation 22, we read, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Again, that's the very end, very, very um, powerful threat. God says, if, if you add or take from this prophecy, you're going to be judged. Don't do it. Proverbs warns us. We just listened to uh, a chapter of Proverbs about bad friends, bad investments, bad women, bad men, bad strategies, and, and all the more. Um, both the minor and major prophets are largely dedicated to warning Israel about the danger of breaking covenant with God. And who does Jesus not warn in the Gospels? When, when does Jesus not warn somebody? Is there, there's a, you barely can go a page uh, without him warning Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, politicians, and his own disciples, and whoever else he ran into. So always warning people. So look, if you love God, if you love God's word, if you love God's messengers, if you love your own life and soul, uh, you will learn to love warnings. God, uh, good preaching comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And if you're comfortable, you do need to be warned. It's the most loving thing. And here I'll give you two examples. Consider rumble strips and speed humps. I say speed humps on purpose, right? Speed bumps are like that big. Speed humps are like those gigantic ones. Rumble strip are those things that make that obnoxious noise uh, when you drift onto the shoulder of a road. Um, I hate the sound. I don't like the way they feel. I don't like feeling it through the uh, steering wheel. But I, without a doubt, owe my life to them. Um, When I was dating Emily back in high school, she lived down in Cincinnati, Ohio. I lived up in southern Indiana, and the drive was about an hour. I'd get down there in the morning, hang out all day, and at nighttime, uh, I'd drive home, and I'd get tired. And I would do all the things you do to stay awake in a car when you get tired. You know, roll down the windows to the, you know, turn the music up, turn the music off, 
Um, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I do that like thing where your eyes are getting dry, and so you're kind of like licking up there and trying to stay awake. Um, and uh, and even when I do all that, it wouldn't matter. I mean, nowadays I just call some of my cell phone to talk to them. <laughs> that helps. But we didn't have cell phones yet, or they're the Zach Morris ones. Uh, but um, everyone in the 90s, yes. Um, anyhow, I still would drift off the road on a couple occasions. And, uh, and then you wake up, right? And you realize, I, I was just traveling down the road at the speed of a cheetah asleep, right? How dangerous that was. And, you, and it's very shocking. You, adrenaline shoots through your whole body, you know? And, uh, and you wake up from them. The same thing's true of those uh, speed humps. You enter some housing development doing 35 um, and hit a speed hump, and you, you launch into outer space. Those are those real big ones. When the car comes down, you know, it drags and sometimes sparks. And uh, in there, you do the same thing. I actually hurt my back once, hitting one of those, but not because of the impact. It was because I did this. Like, I squeezed that wheel, and some little sissy muscle in my back popped. And it's because I was so shocked. And that, you know, think about it for a second. How many lives have been saved through rumble strips and speed humps? How many little kids have not been hit by a car because of those irritating humps? How many people made it home because of, of uh, rumble strips? And that's the nature of warnings, though. They're not, that's why I said threats earlier. Right? Threats are threatening. Warnings are like, you know... I don't, does anyone actually read the warnings in the back of vitamins? I don't. You know, I know don't take too many or you'll die. But there's, yeah, there's warnings in the back of everything. Warnings, threats, though, still has that power. And when someone warns you, they shock you awake when they do it right. They disturbed. Warnings are initially upsetting. That's the nature of warnings. And you need to listen up because it is easy to fall asleep spiritually. It's easy to be lulled into a state of reckless slumber. It's easy to be unknowingly headed for danger when your sight is impeded and clouded. And that's why scripture warns from Genesis to Revelation through the whole thing. Gotta love warnings. We may not like them. I don't like speed humps. I don't like rumble strips. And I don't like when Andrew says annoyed in an annoyed way, right? Annoyed! <laughs> Did you feel it? I felt it. I feel these things. Maybe you guys don't. I feel those things. They're meant to be felt. Rumble strips, speed humps are meant to be felt, to upset, to wake you up. Christian brethren and pastors who love you will warn you. They'll say, no, no, everything isn't all right. You're headed down a dangerous road. You're, you aren't leading your wife. You aren't following your husband. You aren't disciplining your kids. You don't respect your parents. You're being foolish with God's money. You're being lazy. Brother, you are arrogant. You should not be arrogant. They will warn you. And the list could go on forever. What else? Wherever it is, your pastor or faithful Christian brethren will say, this is bad. If you don't change, things are going to get worse. So to the wind, weep the world whirlwind right so learn to love warnings because those who warn you love you and are doing it to protect you from trouble and even possible destruction we have to learn we have to 
we have to tell people like, yeah, I know. Sometimes you sit through those sermons and your hair, and it starts standing up straight. That's good. Right? Would you come to church? Come to church to take a nap? Is that what this place is for? To sleep? Which brings me to a specific warning I want to draw out from this passage, which is uh, uh, we should we should be aware that we could not enter the rest of God. He says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So in verse 1, we see that the danger that we're being warned about is, is the coming short of entering the rest of God, which begs two questions. First, what is the rest of God? Second, how does one come short of entering it? So first, the rest of God, says Matthew Henry, refers to entering into a covenant relation to Christ in a state of communion with God through Christ and of growing up therein till we are made perfect in glory. In other words, the rest of God is all the benefits that accompany accompany salvation. It's the whole thing. There is a rest that only Christians have. If you're a Christian, you know the blessing of that rest. Our souls find rest when we are freed from the dominion of sin, Satan, and the flesh. Our conscience finds rest when it knows that it, through the blood of Christ is at peace with God so much so that we have fellowship with him as a son to a father. It's the beautiful rest we have. It's a wonderful spiritual rest, which he's talking about. And this passage is warning us that there's a possibility of not coming into the rest of God. And this reality should be fear-inducing, which is why in verse 1 he says, let us fear. John Calvin explains, the fear which is here recommended is not that which shakes the confidence of faith, but such as fills us with such concern that we grow not sluggish with indifference. So the fear, this is what people need to understand about warnings. If you don't listen to the warnings in Scripture, then you're not a Christian. If you do listen to the warnings in Scripture, then you are a Christian. Right? The the only person... If you're going down like a road that has those little wiggly, if you ever driven through West Virginia, right? If you're driving through West Virginia, you have to like pay attention because it's pretty crazy in spots. Um, the only guy that doesn't pay attention to those warning signs is the guy that's drunk and driving reckless. Those of us that know the danger, like, pay, oh, the sign's telling me crazy turn coming up, slow down. And that's Christians when they see warnings in Scripture, they take heed because they're awake, they're alive. But there is danger. And the Christian recognizes that danger. That's why they're not in the ditch. If you don't pay attention to the warning signs, you end up in the ditch. Some weird understanding of eternal security gets tied up into this. And people try to say, well, we don't really have to fear. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. There's real danger. But if you know the Lord, you'll listen to him when he warns you. We should be concerned about this danger. And we should be on guard. So what is it? How does one come short of entering the rest of God? Well, the writer answers this question by comparing New Testament Christians to the generation that Moses led out of Egypt in the Exodus. Both groups, according to verse uh, 2, had the gospel preached to them 
And yet the word that the Jews heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So just point out, just a little side note, it is pretty amazing that the gospel that, that came to us came to them. It's the same continuity there between these two testaments, these two covenants is right there. Um, but, so here's the answer. It's unbelief. It's a lack of faith which keeps someone from coming into the rest of God. It kept a generation of Israelites from enjoying God's uh, promise, and that same, the same thing will be true of us if we follow their example of unbelief. So unbelief is what he's warning you about. Now, I, I fear the radicalness of that statement is easily missed if we don't consider the nature of, of that congregation that wandered in the wilderness. What's being said here is pretty stunning. It's amazing to think about what that generation had. I mean, it's a lot. <clears throat> um, you know, we had a committee here that picked Andrew. That's pretty amazing, like a bunch of people say. But, but who picked Moses? God himself, directly, right? God worked through the means of a committee here to bring someone in. But God himself picks Moses. And then Aaron, who's like kind of, he's a priest, but he's his second-hand man. He's right there, right-hand man. Um, and then uh, they saw God's awesome judgments in Egypt. God destroy um, Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time, in, in very incredible ways. They experienced the first Passover, right? The one where people are dying outside if they don't take it rightly. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground. I mean, that's amazing. Big walls of water. I, I don't forget which Moses movie it is, but I like when the lightning strikes. One of the Moses, you see like a fish swimming through it. Just, it's amazing what they saw. They received the Ten Commandments written by the very finger of God. They had the tabernacle, and they made it according to God's very designs. They saw the glory cloud or the pillar of, of fire by night and the cloud by day. They had all these powerful means by which the gospel, according to the author of Hebrews, was preached to them. Just by way, an important issue to address here for a moment. God works through means. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school. He can work directly upon a soul, but generally he has seen fit to bind his works to means that are largely visible or outward. Um, The Shorter Catechism says, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. So the importance of the visible means has been diminished or wholly rejected by evangelicals nowadays. No one, they don't think they matter. Um, they don't need to hear preaching. They can go out in the woods with the squirrels and all that and read their Bibles or listen to some MP3 thing. Uh, perhaps a small group of carefully selected friends, a little echo chamber. Um, they, uh, they make baptism into a personal rite. I don't see this that much down here, but where I come from up in Cincinnati, people are baptizing folks in bathtubs all the time, right? Like, so you, like, you're convicted and like, I think I'm going to rededicate my life to Jesus. And your friend's like, hey, before we see the movie, let's go baptize you in the bathtub. You know, that's always happening. So all the Reformed churches are like, is this a legit baptism or not? They're always debating on how it works. Um, but they make it a personal right, or they don't even, you know, they don't even care about it. It has nothing to do with the visible church or the officers or any of that. And the Lord's Supper is reduced to mere memorial meal 
if it's kept at all. It's, I mean, I've been to places where the Lord's Supper, I, I kid you not, this is going to set you know, I hope this makes you a little angry, where they, they kept it with Doritos and Cherry Coke. I'm not kidding. I mean, this is evangelicalism. Um, they, don't, they don't really care about the church. They see the church as entirely optional. You think, well, they have churches. Well, they do, but they show up like every once in a while. I know I've been part of these churches, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but thankfully there's a growing reaction against this, especially in Reformed churches. People are starting to see just how important it is that they get baptized, belong to a church, sit under preaching, partake in the sacraments, and submit to the leaders. It's really wonderful. And this church is part of that reaction, part of that resurgence. Praise the Lord. A lot of churches are like that. But there is a danger. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, about the generation in the wilderness. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. In other words, they were blessed with the same benefits we enjoy this day. There was a church of God among them, as there is uh, among us today. They had the sacraments. We have sacraments. Back then, there to be tokens of God's grace to them. And yet in verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. I like laid low. Makes me think of that Johnny Cash song, God's Gonna Cut You Down, you know that one? Laid low. I like it when it's in a Johnny Cash song, not when it's applied to me. Back in Hebrews 3, the writer says, And with whom he was angry for 40 years, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And then Jude 1, verse 5, says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Take that in for a moment. The Exodus generation had all these incredible means of grace. Their visible society was organized precisely according to the direct commands of God. So structurally and systematically speaking, they had it perfect. And yet they all died in the wilderness Why? Because the word they heard wasn't united by faith. None of these things are profitable without faith. And that's a good warning for us. We are tempted to trust in our outward visible systems. But you can have all the outward stuff right and still not enter the rest of God. And the writers of the New Testament think that's pretty profound because they bring it up over and over again. You can listen to a million sermons. You can read a million theology books. But the word without faith isn't profitable. This sermon, all the sermons you hear, mean nothing without faith. Nothing. I had a Bible professor at NKU, right? Gay as a $3 bill. Knows Bible better than all of you. Do you think the word profits him? It's amazing. This guy reads the Bible about five times a year. Puts me to shame. 
and he just knows it inside and out, does not know the Lord at all, has no faith, it will not profit him. I mean, it's hardening him to destruction. It's doing something. But that's not what we call profit, for, personally. Prophets bringing them into the rest of God. The same goes with the sacraments. Baptism, regardless of mode and time, has zero value without faith. That is what our confession says. It says it's a great sin to neglect or contempt it, but it's not so inseparably joined with it that you that is required for salvation. It's exactly what it says. Same thing is again true. The Lord's Supper is worthless without faith. Belonging to the visible church, this very church will not save you and give you any true rest without faith. Children, my children, Spiller children, Bragg children, Dion children, Millers, look at all these children. Your parents won't get you to heaven. It's not going to happen. God doesn't say, who's your mommy and daddy? It's, do you have faith? But having Christian parents is a great advantage. But not without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I talk to a lot of people about churchy stuff uh, <laughs> because of my podcast and things I'm interested in. And, you know, I'm on staff at a church and people have questions. And people's questions about our church consistently demonstrate wrong priorities, in my opinion. You know, just over and over again, they ask weird questions like, does your church have a youth group? Now, that may not seem like a weird question to you, but it's not the one I would like to lead with. Um, does your church have evening services? I mean, recently someone found out that we had considered going back to small groups and we still might do it. And they're like, oh, that's a shame. It's a shame you're going to go back to small groups and not have evening services. Really? Why? <laughs> they backed off right away. <laughs> go on, tell me why. But <laughs> What's your position on head coverings? I got this one recently. Not someone that doesn't come to our church. I almost just emailed him back. Really? Question mark. Um, how frequently do you celebrate the Lord's Supper? Weekly, right? Weekly? <laughs> Why would you not do it weekly? I mean, it says it right in Scripture, but it doesn't. But it doesn't. Are you exclusive psalmody? That's where, you're like, the only thing you can sing is psalms, and you can't sing Jesus' name, or that would be a great sin. Um... Do you allow younger children to take the Lord's Supper? Do you sprinkle dunk or pour? Are you family integrated church? What's your style of music? And on and on it goes. These are the questions you hear. And look, those questions are okay to ask, some more so than others, right? Some are, they do have importance. But once and for all, I just like to hear someone ask, um, will your church consistently call me and my family to faith and repentance? Now, someone, I posted some of this on Facebook, and someone said, well, I don't ask questions. Um, I already know the answers to. Well, God does. Adam, where are you? God, God knew where he was. Right? When you ask that question and look, look at the minister, look at the person and see how they answer, it's going to tell you a lot about the church. And you're going to tell them a lot about your priorities. Do you guys preach the gospel? Are you guys ashamed of what the Scripture says on sexuality or Scripture says on money or Scripture says on anything? Are you ashamed of Scripture? Um, 
I would like someone to ask that. Why doesn't anyone ever ask that? It's because it's not our main concern. Uh, we're after a system that makes us feel safe. That's what we're after. A perfect system of church. We think it will give us rest, but it will not. It will not give you rest. Our gaze is too low when we get stuck on these things. Let me make this point here. Just kind of a toss away. It's related. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23, 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He's not saying tithing doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that they are all about that, but not about the big thing. They're all about the little thing and not the main thing. That's what he's warning. You should do both. But you're neglecting the weight of your matter. I love Presbyterian government. Here I am. I've fallen in love with it more and more since I've been down here, the more I've studied it. But a Presbyterian that doesn't discipline those that belong to it, the, other, the elders, right, is not a Presbyterian. It may have all the form, but it doesn't have the spirit. I, uh, I've seen lots. God changed men and women uh, from butch and weak to, to beautiful and strong. And, uh, but what I've seen with a lot of women when they're convicted of the rebellion against nature, same with men, is that they'll do the outward things first. So I can think of a woman who grew her hair really long and only wore dresses and was very critical of anyone that wore pants. Right? She'd always say, there's, there's man pants and sexy pants. Right? I said, well, there's sexy man pants. There is a third category. But, um, just push her back. but she, she was very proud of that. She had no deference for anyone. No respect for any authority. Right? She thinks she's feminine. I'd rather her shave her head and wear pants and have deference than have all the outward stuff. I've seen guys that they think hunting, killing deers and growing a beard and, and being all about spitting and drinking and football or whatever, somehow that makes them a man, but they don't take any responsibility. Right? They're, they're, they're fragile when someone rebukes them. Is that manly? It's surface level. A man without responsibility is not a godly man. Here's another one. A perfectly kept home without hospitality is not a Christian home. Now, should our homes be clean and well kept? Yes. Should men look like men and women look like women? Yes. Right? Should we have Presbyterian government? Absolutely. But do not neglect the weightier matters. We have to have the core thing. And the other things will come along in time. Outward signs are good. Right? But without faith, they don't matter. We find a similar warning uh, from Paul in Romans 2. Uh, at the end of Romans 2, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circ- uh, circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, 
uh, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not for men, but from God. So the Jews had come to trust in a bare sign. Calvin says, for it always happens that those who dare set up their own merits against the righteousness of God glory more in outward observances than in real goodness. For no one who is seriously touched and moved by the fear of God will ever dare to raise his eyes to heaven. Since the more he strives after true righteousness, the clearer he sees how far he is from it. There is always a danger in thinking that mere participation in outward signs and means will have benefit, but they don't. I love the verse that follows that passage in Romans 2. Because uh, it's exactly what we would say. It's exactly what we say. The, the Jews say, uh, then what advantage has the Jews? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Right? Like, if, wait, if they don't matter? And then, of course, he's not saying they don't matter. But they're missing the point. Why do outward signs matter? What is the benefit of the word and sacrament? What advantage has the church growing Christian? This is what we would ask when people point out the necessity of faith. And Paul's answer is great in every respect. The means of grace are just that. Means of grace. But they're only made effective by faith because God has attached a promise to them. Blessings flow from the word and sacrament when they're joined with faith. Something real happens in baptism. Something real happens in the Lord's Supper, but not apart from faith. There's a mystical thing going on there. Calvin talks about it, but not apart from faith. Not because of the sign itself. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to become obsessed with the outward signs. And that is such a danger for us because we can pride ourselves in not being evangelicals who don't care about church and don't have any doctrine of music or doctrine of sacraments or, or whatever. Um, we can pride ourselves in that. And then we can come to trust the sign instead of uh, what's behind the sign, God's promise. Many of us here have children that have been admitted to the Lord's table. I, I am happy this is the case with one of my kids and, and seeing your children added to the Lord's Supper as well. It's admitted, I should say. Um, but those things in themselves don't bring me much comfort. I always think of this. I see this with both Baptists and Presbyterians. You know, there's kind of a sigh of relief for some Presbyterians when their little baby gets baptized, right? And then Baptists puff up their chests like, we don't do that. What do you mean? I've seen you do it with your, like, your 12-year-old up there. He gets baptized, and you're like, whew, whew, what do you, baptism save What do you think baptism is going to do apart from faith? But here's what actually gives me comfort is when I see my son, my children, repent of, of their sins and ask God for forgiveness. Where I see God's working on their conscience. When I see they're alive. Alive. Life. We can have the form and lack the substance, can't we? That's when I start to let out a sigh of relief. And I say the Spirit is working on his heart, her heart. And they are responding to it. Oh, that the Lord would give our children faith. That they just wouldn't be more church kids that apostatize in college or sooner. Oh, God give them faith. God give us faith. 
pray that they would see us repent and see us alive. Real faith joined to preaching and sacraments produces powerful results in the life of the believer. The problem was with the preaching that they heard in the garden, or garden, in the wilderness, quite the opposite, was that it wasn't joined with faith. We have to be reformed, right? Care about ecclesiology, evangelicals. We have to, like that, what the old meaning of the word evangelical. We have to ha- hold these things together. And we're constantly being pulled. I was telling someone, he said, oh, you're sounding like an evangelical. I said, I always want to sound like an evangelical when I'm talking to a sacramentalist. <laughs> he was like, Ugh. are you saying I'm a sacramentalist? That's what I'm saying. But to evangelical, I know I, sometimes I sound like a sacramentalist because I'm all about the means of grace and the visible church. And that's because both matter. Visible and invisible. God works through these things. Oh, so what's the conclusion of all this? Well, number one is love warnings. Learn to love warnings. They're hard. They're hard to give. You know, it's hard to give warnings. It's hard with your own kids. The difference with my kids is they can't leave my house yet. But when you warn people in your church, you think they might just leave. Maybe I'll, I'll delay a little bit. And we'll bring them along. And then it's really hard to issue those warnings. And then, you know, I think it was D.L. Moody was preaching up in Chicago before the great fire up there. And he had these uh, sermons uh, set up where it ended with a cliffhanger for the gospel. Right? So he ends up not giving the gospel at the end of it. And then the great, this great Chicago fire happens and a bunch of people die. And he's like, I'll never wait again. <laughs> I will always issue the warnings. And, uh, but it's hard. It's hard to do it because we're scared people will leave. Um, but you got to do it. So love warnings. Make it easier for your husband, for your wife. What is a wife that doesn't warn her husband? Not a very good helpmate. What is a pastor? What is a deacon? What is an elder? What is a Christian brother that doesn't warn you when they see you're veering off towards the ditches? And then secondly, beware of trust and bear signs and systems. They're worthless without faith. Your homeschool curriculum will not save your kids. Your participation in church will not save you. You must have faith in God. You must trust the Lord. I mean, this is the point of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, right? Wonderful, long list of all these people that have faith. And then it gets to another beautiful therefore in chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounded, uh, witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what this should do. Preaching should help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Sacraments, all those things. And that, that is what I would challenge you, brethren. Do you love God? Are you repenting of your sins? Are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Are you just cruising? Are you falling asleep at the wheel? I pray not, especially youngins. All right, let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us, so merciful to us to bring us into your fold. Oh, Lord, preserve us to the end. We thank you that 
you are the one working in us. Pray that you would give us faith, a faith that responds to warnings, a faith that turns away from some danger and runs towards you. Teach us, Father, to flee and pursue, to say no to the things of this world that destroy souls, and yes to the means and opportunities you provide to us so faithfully. Help us to warn one another in love and build one another up so we can run the race set before us. Help our eyes never drift from you onto these lower things. In your son's name, amen.